Hello and welcome to the Flatland in Focus podcast. I'm your host, D. Rashawn Gilmore, and you may know me from our monthly show airing every Thursday on Kansas City PBS. Each month we focus on a new topic impacting folks in the greater KC area, and we always end up with so many great questions from the panel of experts and community members that we assemble. So in this podcast series, we want to give you everything we couldn't fit into that neat 30-minute show. So this includes everything from Flatland follow-up as well, our audience conversation that goes live on Instagram every third Thursday at 7.30 p.m., right after our show airs. So please join me as we dive into this month's topic, the future of the Country Club Plaza. All right, and welcome back. With us in studio tonight are four individuals at the forefront of these issues. Chris Good, owner of Ruby Jeans Juicery and member of the Plaza District Council. Developer Matt Pennington of Drake Development, known for its ambitious mixed-use projects. Tyler Enders, who is with the City Planning Commission and a co-owner of Made in KC. And Flatland's very own managing editor and my boss, Chris Lester, who worked as a producer for Kansas City PBS on that special documentary on the history of the Nichols folly. So with that, I want to do a bit of a level set with you, Chris, and just talk for a moment, if you will, about the role that the Country Club Plaza Mm -hmm. plays, not only in Kansas City, but what it means to so many of us. Uh, Yeah, I've come to view uh, the Country Club Plaza as a prism through which to tell the story for the entire community. Its story over the past century is one of displacing downtown, being a springboard for suburban sprawl, and and really the stage where a lot of our discussions about the direction of the city happen. When we talk about ownership, and we will tonight about who should own it, how that should look, what about the ownership of Kansas Cityans? What is it about the plaza that we all feel makes it uh, uniquely our own? One of the things that emerged in working on on the documentary, it's private property. And it always has been. But everybody in town views it as a public trust as yeah. well. And it, there's a, a interesting personal investment that everybody has with their own perspective. Uh, it's almost like the Chiefs or the Royals. Everybody's always talking about the plaza and what's going on in the plaza and where's it going and how's it going to work out and all that stuff. It's just an incredible ongoing public conversation. So I think that kind of you know begs the the, the question then of, as the city really struggles to consider the plaza's future. And it's not just the municipality, it's all of us collectively, as Chris is saying. What measures can be taken to ensure that development projects um, that are considering uh, being on the plaza, that are in the works, what should they be doing to make sure that they maintain that balance between public safety and attracting the right types of businesses to the area, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I think with the changing retail trends and just with the changing, ever-changing environment, you really just got to be have an open mind. And I think we're seeing more of that um, here now that, that things have been changing. Um, I've seen it on some of my projects, but uh, it really comes down to retailers and restaurants' needs is, is we have to adapt to them and we have to provide them a safe space. Um, security, obviously, is a, a huge, important part of that. But as we look to, to change the plaza, we're looking at um, what, are, what do our retailers need? Well, let's find out. Uh, <laughs> Tyler, you are a retailer on the plaza. Have you, I mean, like most of us, I would imagine, seen this change in terms of the types of retail stores that are on the plaza? Should there be that mix of entertainment? Is it just a shopping district and a, a, an expansive food court, if you will? What is the plaza? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know if I have a great answer for it. We've been down there since 2018. It's certainly one of our favorite locations. It is our most trafficked location by far. And I think that you have seen, we've seen um, a lot of innovation, a lot of new ideas, new companies. And I think what would benefit everyone, including retailers, shoppers, would be a little bit more vision, more leadership. Um, you know, saying this is where we're destined to go and kind of aligning interested groups. And so a lot of what we've seen has almost been in spite of that type of leadership. And I, I don't want to, you know, say anything negative about my, my current landlord, but if, if a new owner, a new prospective owner is coming in here and has a really strong vision of what they would like to see, how they want to see the streets filled with people and activity, I think that's what 
Kansas City is ready for. And I think that a lot of people are kind of on the sidelines, ready to invest, ready to move down there, whether it's their business, their office. Okay, so let's let's talk about this piece with new ownership. So the current owners, um, Talbot Centers and uh, Merrick, Mech, I cannot pronounce his name, Macerich. Macerich, thank you. They jointly purchased the plaza for $660 million. But then they defaulted on their their note and roughly, you know, $295 million was just sort of lingering out there. So for me, and I throw this question to, to you, Chris Good, how should the city plan to support entertainment and other cultural experiences in the plaza area moving forward? We just heard both Matt and Tyler say that we need to have that right blend of businesses down there. What does that look like, though? You know, I think for me, coming from my perspective, right, the plaza has always been a place that you go every now and then. It's a place that people even outside of Kansas City are like, oh, you're from Kansas City. I've been to the plaza. plaza right? it's, yeah. it's one of those things. And so I think that that creates an obligation for the city to use all of its surrounding assets, you know, uh, Mill Creek Park, the tennis courts, and activate them, create a bowl around it that really pours into retailers like Made in KC, restaurants and then making way for small retailers, you know, very, very small food retailers to bring in new cultures, new fare and give it that that home like feel, you know, that that feeling that Kansas City that we love, that we adore, the local vibe that we love about Made in KC. But is it fair to say that it has always been the expectation and that maybe just our collective experience at the Country Club Plaza was really about those higher-end stores that you didn't find anywhere else. It's not Westport where we have a lot of local, which and many of us don't want that aspect of Westport to change, but there does seem to be, Chris, a bit of a shift. Well, there's, there's a couple of things here. It has changed and evolved all through the last hundred years. So it this started, is not new. It started as a local service-oriented retail center for the people who lived nearby. And then it became much more of a high-end experience in the 80s and whatnot. And one of the things about the default and the presumed assumed change in ownership is the new owners are going to be at a much lower investment base than yeah. the previous owners. And hopefully that gives them more fi financial flexibility to fix deferred maintenance and also entice new retailers. So there is a silver lining in this default, potentially. So, but the realities of it are that there are 24 vacancies um, on the, the plaza right now. That's not a small number. Uh, I don't know what historically it has been, but it certainly is noticeable as you drive through the area. And Chris Good, you spoke about the city uh, and their role pouring in resources. I'm interested to know both from you and from Tyler, what resources specifically are needed? Are we talking purely or mostly financial resources? Are there other things that need to happen uh, in terms of uh, the, the city investing more in, in security and safety? What specifically is needed? So I think even before you get into the Country Club Plaza proper, right? Brush Creek is just there. It's a beautiful asset that's it's underwhelming. You know, it's a, it's a thing you look past where it can be an activation point that no matter what people come and visit, whether people are doing rowing races up and down Brush Creek, that brings economic prowess to one of our biggest revenue centers in the Country Club Plaza just by activating the real estate that it owns. And so I think that by focusing more on and pouring more into, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. We don't need a, a tennis court right there. I think there are tennis courts in many different spots. That's not the be best activation of that real estate. That's an opportunity for the what city to activate. There could be a STEM center that bridges kids from the east to the west and creates this, this hub of food and STEM and education that brings activity, vibrancy, right? Every time we see Monday Night Football, you'll see the, the camera do this big pan yeah. and you see the Country Club Plaza. And then when you get just to the east of the plaza, there's nothing there. And it's such a huge opportunity for the city to take in the resources that it's, it's bringing in and pour into it. I appreciate that. I, I, you actually said something I want to come back to, but I want to give you a chance, Tyler, to just sort of respond to my other, other question about what resources are needed. Are you lacking uh, resources that the city can and should provide or are they doing enough and it's really going to be up to the new owners? I'll give you two answers. I think there are many. Um, you'd mentioned 24 vacancies. Clearly, that's a fluctuating number. Um, in that count, two things that would not have been counted 
would be the theater building. So the old theater building, which is just um, west. Right, of, and the Nordstrom's lot, if well, you will. <laughs> yeah, and, and so the theater building just west of the Cheesecake Factory, where Restoration Hardware used to be. There's over 12,000 square feet on the internal part of that building that is not functionally um, uh, viable right now. And so you have these really old buildings that were designed mm -hmm. a long time ago. And that building in particular, you've got Shake Shack on one corner, there's one alleyway and there's room for one dumpster. And because that one dumpster is already spoken for by Shake Shack, the, the building in some ways is, is architecturally obsolete. And so we can't fully maximize that building the way it sits today. Um, if you look at the other theater building um, above Urban Outfitters where the movie theater used to be, you have tens of thousands of square feet of vacancy. And so that might be counted as a vacancy. I don't know how people are counting these things, but you have some buildings that really need some true investment where either the ceiling height is incorrect or you have an alleyway problem. So that's one thing that I think investment, financial investment would help with. And then the second thing that I'll mention briefly would be um, as someone's looking to invest in this area, we need to have a really dependable uh, landscape for that investment. And so you need to know what the city wants to see. You need to know that, okay, I'm not going to be working on a project for two years to get it off the ground. And so the city owes some, some level of certainty to retailers, to shoppers, to developers of here's what we want to see in the Country Club Plaza and here's what the rules are. Are those tax incentives that we're talking about or other resources? You know, I think that we have, um, and, and Matt could probably speak to this much better than I could, I think there are a lot of, of ways that people can finance projects. I, what I hear the most, whether it's on City Planning Commission or um, as a retailer, is that people just want dependability of knowing how they get through the city's processes when they're trying to make a project pencil and get through the permitting process. Well, and, and I, I do want to go to Matt, but I have a, a bit of a different question, and it really sort of ties in with that. But as we bring in new investment, whether that's from outside of the city or if it's from uh, City Hall itself, are we at risk of losing some of the uh, architectural history that really makes the plaza what it is with all these new developments? Is that a, a, a factor or a concern? And is, is that something that the city should be looking at in terms of making sure that whoever is coming in uh, bears that in mind? Yeah, I mean, I think yes and no, right? I mean, I think you got to look at each project for what it is. I think Tyler's done a really good job of explaining that every single project is a different animal. Um, at the end of the day, you have 800,000 square feet of retail on the plaza. I don't know of any other shopping center in the country that has 800,000 square feet of retail with a vibrant you know, users. So you're going to have to make difficult choices. And whether you're going to take down some of the buildings on the east side, whether you, you remove some different structures, that's going to be a, a, a situation that the city and the developer is going to have to have. And until we have those difficult discussions, you're not going to see you know, more density uh, done in a correct manner. Um, you're not going to see residential, which is a must on the plaza to be able to get more foot traffic and those retailers um, for concepts that are local and national to survive. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, there are some difficult uh, choices ahead of us. And, and, and Chris, I, <laughs> I have to go to you, but I want you to respond to that. But I also want you to answer this question, too, because, you know, Matt just mentioned housing. And we've had some robust conversation in our production meetings about that very topic. And so if you could speak to that as well, because I don't know in the Plaza's 100-year history if it's ever had anything that approximated what we might call affordable housing or if there was ever a push or any of that. So I, I bring that big gift to you and ask you, my friend, to unwrap that for us. There, there is so much to unpack from the last five minutes. <laughs> First of all, may I rewind the tape ever so slightly and talk about the preservation aspect of the Plaza? It is architecturally significant. I think yeah. everyone agrees with that. It has never had local landmark designation. It's never had a national designation, which would come with a variety of tax breaks to help incent redevelopment, but also lots of red tape and restrictions on how to manage the plaza. For the better part of the last century, it was owned by the Nichols Company, and there was some level of trust that they would take care of the plaza and not have any additional oversight. The last 30 years have been out-of-town owners, and some really weird things have happened since then. So that's a big discussion. Notably, the prospective new owners, their big project down in Dallas does have national designation, which is interesting to at least see what they may or may not want to do. As to the housing thing, you mentioning the tennis courts is really interesting to me. Because if you look at the plaza, it came up in our documentary several times, people are drooling over that piece of property, yeah. quite honestly. And if you look at the plaza now with the Nordstrom's lot and with the tennis courts bookending the plaza, 
those two pieces of property and what happens with those in terms of going up in the air and creating housing with maybe ground floor retail, it's something to keep an eye on. One of the folks we interviewed for the documentary said they had done an informal survey of sites around the plaza and they said, we could do 2,500 units of housing. We could do another million square feet of commercial, office, medical, et cetera. That pressure, what's interesting is the plaza is still appealing for development, but it also comes with pressure and planning issues and infrastructure issues that we're going to be wrestling with for decades. So, so I have to ask Matt, as a developer, it, is that even appealing? You already mentioned there's 800,000 square feet of essentially space, retail space primarily, I assume. And the numbers that Chris just threw out, I mean, is that something that one has an appeal? And then I'm going to go to both of, you know, Chris and, and, and Tyler to ask, is that what we want? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, look, like I, I'm not going to change my mind on difficult decisions that need to be made on some of the, the structures. I do agree on the tennis courts. That is a, a, an amazing spot for residential or some type of activated use, like Chris was saying. Um, but there is there's just a number of decisions that need to be made to, to activate different areas of the plaza um, to allow us to move forward. And we're, you know, and I, and I think the new ownership, potential new ownership, I don't want to say new ownership, but potential yeah. new ownership, um, I think you hit the, the nail on the head with that. They do they they do a really good job with the historic preservation and. But if you look at their centers, they don't have more than 150 or 200,000 square foot of retail. So let's just be honest with ourselves right now that even if we turn this into Beverly Hills, you're talking to 100 150,000 of prime you know, tenants that are coming to the plaza. So those are going to be the difficult discussions we're all going to have to face. So in, in that case, Tyler, first to you. Does that change the not just the the makeup of the plaza, but does it change how it feels and what it means in Kansas City if we are to further develop it? I mean, that that would be scaling it by more than double in some cases. So, is that what we want? I mean, as a retailer, there, how do you feel about that? Yeah. So, I I also sit on the Plaza District Council with Chris, and one of the things we talk about often is we just want to see a vibrant place where people are walking around seven days a week. Um, you see families going to a park because there's green space and something to do. You see people who are working there, living there, et cetera. And so, yes, for us, you know, we, we do want to see more people in general. And I think that anytime I hear about a building coming down, especially a historic building, yeah. my initial reaction is to tense up. But then when I hear about, oh, well, what if we had this beautiful veranda or this big green space or this big area where we could activate and have shows or concerts or bring people together, that's something that kind of helps me imagine what could be. And it's difficult to have those um, you know, discussions that are so um, theoretical, but it is exciting to think about what this area could look like if everyone followed a, a vision that someone could actually execute. And if people kind of leaned into advancing the next hundred years in a way that's more inclusive, that's more prosperous for all of Kansas City. How do we achieve that? I, I love the sound of that. I want that for our city. How do we achieve that, Chris? I know that's a, a very loaded question, but you got all the answers. That's the, <laughs> that's the difficult conversation. That's the that's the real difficult conversation. I've been saying this in our work on the council, Plaza District Council. Um, it was always it's always been the plaza, and it has to transition for the next hundred years in being our plaza. And so, when I think of the tennis courts, I think there's the opportunity to go vertical, but then there's a beautiful skating rink on the bottom, or something that creates a bridge from the east to the west and says that. This isn't a place that you're not supposed to come to because you're a young black teenage kid. This is a place that you're welcome because we have amenities that are for you, that are for your family, where you can also feel safe because that safety thing is a that's loaded. Because I think for for black people and I'm I only know one way to be and that's honest for black people. It's always been this kind of a, ah, you know, should I go there? Do I feel welcome? Is that for me? Is it not for me? What time should my kids go there? That's a lack of safety. And so I think is that safety is extended east, then it'll exist on the west and the east in the form of the, a new plaza. Chris Lester, what, what has been the great failing um, where it concerns the Country Club Plaza? I mean, it's easy to talk about it from an economic perspective and some of the politics that are involved in that sort of thing, but has it just been a failure of imagination 
uh, on part of Kansas Cityans writ large. I'm not going to put it on the electeds. I'm not just going to put it on the community. Has it been a failure of imagination or have we just viewed it perhaps as it just sort of replenishes itself? It just is and will always be. It's more than a place. It's an institution in Kansas City. Yeah, it's our it's our front uh, front porch, as some yeah. people say. It is our gathering place. It's where the entire community can come together if it chooses to. Um, the great failing of the plaza. The plaza has real challenges. Um, COVID did it no favors. Yeah. Um, online shopping has done it no favors. Uh, depending on who you ask, uh, in the making of the documentary, people told us somewhere between 30 and 50% of all the receipts on the plaza are from out-of-town zip codes. So you, that gives you that sense of it's not the local place it was when it first started. And I think a lot of this conversation about more housing, more people, more activation, is to address that balance a little bit and make it more of a local place again. I think that's part of the solution, one of many things. Tyler, would you say that in order for that to happen, we have to address one of the concerns that Chris raised, which is around safety and security, uh, to have that vision of the plaza that I think most of us would share. We want all of Kansas City to be able to enjoy it. We want our visitors and friends to enjoy it when they come. But in order to do that, has the city properly addressed the safety and security concerns? I think a lot of that work is happening. And again, I think it's about bringing the, the disparate groups of people together to work together. And I'm, I'm going to interrupt just uh -huh. to press you a little bit. Yeah. What is happening? What are they doing? Yeah. So Casey Common Good, for example, is doing the long, hard, slow work that's the community-based work. And the the police department is doing some of the quick fix work, like parking a, an extra patrol car walking around. And that's that's to give you two bookends of all the work that needs to be done in between. And the work needs to be in tandem with the, the tenants there, with the owners there, with the community members. Um, some of the things that we've talked about in the Plaza District Council is if you take all the different properties around there, because there are a lot of individual property owners as well, whether it's um, in condos, whether it's office buildings or, or retail buildings, and all of them have their individual security systems set up and their security teams. And so I think there needs to be a lot of coordination. One thing that I want to add is that um, as I started out you know, talking about our presence on the plaza, it's it's one of our favorite shops, if not mm -hmm. our favorite shop. It's we love being there. It's a it's it's a wonderful spot. You know, Matt's chosen to invest there, and so it's this amazing asset that is truly you know a gem of our city. And we're all talking about it in the way of we see the potential and we see what the gap is. And so I don't want anyone to think, oh, they're down on the plaza. We're not. You know, we're I'm, yeah. I celebrate it every day, and we just see how much further we can take it. Well, I mean, I think that's a, a great place to kind of wrap the conversation. And I feel like there's really only one really pressing question that has not been asked and answered. And I must do that now. Uh, is it Country Club Plaza or Country Club Plaza? Chris Good. <laughs> Plaza. Plaza. All right, Matt? I've never been asked that question, but Plaza, I would say. Plaza, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler? Yeah, I'm, I'm a Plaza guy. Plaza guy. Okay, Chris? Totally Plaza. Oh, okay. Okay, well, we've been enjoying a great conversation about the Country Cup Plaza today. <laughs> what we've talked about here tonight is more than a, a debate over space. It's a reflection of our collective identity as a community. The tension between legacy and evolution is always going to be there. The plaza is not just a place, but a palimpsest. And it's eternally written and rewritten by the people it serves, right? And so it's a reminder that every decision we make for the future of the Country Club Plaza is also a choice about what kind of city we want to be. You can watch that panel discussion along with our accompanying documentary on our website at flatlandshow.org. Up next, we have our Flatland follow-up where you get to ask our guests your burning questions. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Flatland follow-up. My name is Deaver Sean Gilmore. I have the privilege and pleasure of being the host of Flatland in Focus here on Kansas City PBS. And as you know, after each show at each episode of our show, we do a Flatland follow-up where we kind of broaden the conversation, bring in some other voices, and talk about some of the things that we didn't necessarily get to talk about on air uh, on the show. And I'm very privileged to have my colleagues from Kansas City PBS, one, Chris Lester, who's the managing editor of Flatland, and Emily Woodring, who is the producer of the wonderful, I said producer, 
producer, writer, director, all the things, showrunner, chief potentate of Nichols Folly, which was a great documentary centering the topic of today's Flatland uh, and Focus show and our follow-up, which is the Country Club Plaza. And so I want to jump right in, but first ask Emily and Chris, could you talk to us a little bit about what is Nichols Folly and why that name for a documentary about a destination that is, you know, universally synonymous with Kansas City? Yeah, well, the term is a historical term. Um, it came about, well, the earliest that we could find was like 1947, but apparently it was from the beginning. But it is a term that critics gave the plaza. Mm. Um the idea of the plaza. And they actually so, ran in the star. Like that was actually a, yeah. <laughs> they ran with that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. all over the United States, even like people wow. heard about it. So I think there's many like speculations of why a few are, it was experimental. It was the first of its kind to ever do something like as, this. As an outdoor, for those of yeah. you who are listening who don't know, that means you're not in Kansas City, number one, or never have been here. Because if you've been here or you live here, you know the plaza. But I, Nichols Folly, because it was considered at that time to be out in the suburbs almost. It was yeah. way far away from downtown. And so the criticism was that he, Jason Nichols was, what, nuts? Yeah, I mean, yeah. The I think people at that time were like, well, downtown is, is fine. You know, we don't need this. You know, it's too far away from the city center. No one's going to go there. Um, and then... You know, Bill Worley in the documentary talked about like the downtown property owners kind of viewed it as Nichols Folly as like wishful thinking because they didn't want it to work because they wanted to keep their tenants. Right, right. But those people did end up moving downtown, <laughs> I mean, so, to the plaza. So, so let's talk about this. Uh, you know, th there's such a storied history for the mm -hmm. Country Cup Plaza. And on the show, I asked Chris to give us a little bit of a level set in terms of what the Country Club Plaza means to Kansas City. And not only because of your work on this documentary, but also the fact that you spent a number of years uh, at the Kansas City Star. You, you, you know, Kansas City is home for you. What, what is the significance of the plaza to Kansas City? Uh, I can start by, by quoting Worley again. It was both the product of and the cause of suburban sprawl. Mm. Uh, and Kansas City has been very good at that <laughs> over the yes, last yes. over the last hundred years or so. And it was it really was a phrase I've used a lot in the making of the documentary. It really was a springboard for suburban sprawl in Kansas City. It followed. It got in the path, the south by southwest path of growth in Kansas City, which is the predominant direction in which the city started to grow ever since Francois Choteau established a trading post on the south side of the Missouri River. We have, over time, kind of followed the ridgeline out to Olathe. And 100 years ago, that was kind of the edge. The plaza was kind of the edge of the city. But that general path has been followed for a century. And so, when we talk about the plaza and its ownership. And, and and let me let me just for our listeners let you know that we're going to do this a little bit differently than than how I normally do these flatland follow-ups. So I've got a series of questions that are really in terms of sort of setting the the table for us if you will and doing a little bit of a level set. But then uh, we're going to go to a segment called then and now. And I'm going to throw out a number of topics or issues related to the plaza, some of the things that were both in the Flatland and Focus episode, but also in Nichols Folly, and just let you both respond to that. But then I've got some specific dates that I want to throw out to you, and uh, these are sort of landmark moments in plaza history. It's, it's 100-year history. So moving a little bit forward, I, on the show... Uh, said that the plaza is a uh, palimpsest, uh, it, and I want to break that word down for our, our audience. The Oxford Dictionary defines that word as a manuscript or a piece of writing material on which the original writing has been uh, effaced uh, to make room for later writing, but some of the original writing still remains. And so my question then becomes, if we're talking about the plaza as a palimpsest, something that's reused or altered, but still bearing some visible trace of its earlier form, could you juxtapose for us, Emily, the plaza then and now? Hmm. That's a tough one. Sorry, but I know, I know you yeah, got it. Yeah, the first time I've heard the word, <laughs> I guess, besides the show, it's like, uh... I mean, things have to change. 
right? Like, you know, it's like you can keep as much history of something as you can, but to adapt, you got to change, I think. And that's, that's my thought on it. Um, was there something like clearer you're trying to ask? No, just your immediate impressions. And, and, and Chris, I, I see you're biting at the chomp there. So why don't you give oh, us your thoughts always. on that? <laughs> I'm always chomping usually at the bit on this stuff. <laughs> well, when you look at the plaza, the actual physical plaza, is very much yeah, the largely same. the same, which yes. is impressive. That, the that's, Spanish yeah. architecture, which he sent Delk over to, to um, uh, Seville, Spain, to get ideas about that architecture and, and create the plaza in that form, that's very much the same. But the content of the plaza has changed over and over and over and, and, again. And, and, and break down that word content, years. Chris. That's a, that's a bit Who pregnated. is occupying the space? Gotcha. You know, because the original idea is I'm building all these houses at the edge of town, and those folks want to go someplace and get their groceries and their drugstore and their gas. And, and true all enough, these the plaza was things. very service oriented at that time. And I think it was like the gas stations, the service stations that were really the, sort of the anchors. Help it get yeah. through the depression where the, mm. where the revenue from the gas stations really helped the company stay solvent through the depression, as we showed uh, during the documentary. But then post war, post World War II, they got the first suburban, quote-unquote, Sears store in America outside of a downtown setting, which sent the plaza in a whole other direction of large national retailers. And then by the 80s, it became very luxury uh, retail-focused, you know? So it's constantly evolved, and even now it faces challenges. Say, what, what is it now, though? I mean, well, we talked on the show about the 24 vacancies. And again, I, I stipulated then, I'll stipulate again, that we don't necessarily know if that's, I don't know, let me rephrase, if that's a high or low, historically or not, but it does seem like a lot. And when you drive through mm -hmm. the plaza, particularly when you can, if you've got history in this city, as most of us do, you can drive through and remember, well, oh, that used to be this or that. And now uh, they're just... I wouldn't say boarded up. It's not in that condition, but they're just empty shops. Yeah, I think the plaza kind of has an identity crisis. I think we all feel that. Like, it, yeah. you know, it's it's trying to do a lot of things and be a lot of things for a lot of people. And I think that's always hard because yeah. you can't do that and remain something unique, right? It's like, you know, all those stores are, you know, at the Oak Park Mall, you know, like, you know, 80%. Well, you know, I, I, I was going to I was going to bring this up at the end, but you just hit upon something I want to kind of bring to the to forefront yeah. now. One of the uh, folks in the documentary, and I apologize now that I don't remember that you both were called and can certainly shout it out. He said that at the end of the day, the fact that the plaza does not have not only local ownership. But somebody who really cares about the plaza. Now he attributed that mainly to maybe family members of the, the Nichols family, whatnot. But does it seem to you, Emily, that that is a missing piece of this? Yeah, I think with the amount to that uh, Tobman owned, like they own yeah. properties all over the world. So I think if you own a lot of properties, like you're not going to be able to care for all of them. You know, Nichols yeah. just owned the dis district. Right. You know, they had real estate, but it's like they could focus their time. They lived there, you know, so it was different, of course, back then. They had more control. So I think with the, you know, soon-to-be owners, they don't have as many properties, obviously. So I think there will be more care, and there is local, you know, connections there as well. Chris, jump in. Yeah, it's, Emily really hit on it, uh, but— it was a family business. You know, it was a local Kansas City business that owned and developed the plaza. And so they just have an emotional investment in that property that is unlike an out-of-town owner. And the plaza has been owned by out-of-town people since 1998. And that is a recurring theme with almost everybody we interviewed was that is missing, you know, and that sense of being uniquely Kansas City is is missing. And with the prospective new owners, a couple of thoughts on those folks. They own a shopping center in Dallas, Highland Park Village, um, which was literally modeled on the plaza. It opened up in 1931 mm. and was very much modeled on the plaza. And it is owned, interestingly enough, Highland Park Village down in Dallas is owned by members of the extended Hunt family, not the same branch that owns the Chiefs and Hunt Midwest. Um, here in town, but kind of another branch of that extended family. So there is, there is at least some modest knowledge of Kansas City and hopefully 
people who have actually visited with those folks say they seem to be very interested in in doing things differently on the plaza in terms of just management of it. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Flatland Follow-Up, and I am D. Rashawn Gilmore, your host of Flatland in Focus and Flatland Follow-Up, and I'm joined today by my esteemed colleagues, Chris Lester and Emily Woodring, and we're talking about the future of the Country Club Plaza, but we began this conversation talking about the past and the wonderful documentary that both Emily and Chris worked on, Nichols Folly, that really presents the plaza, um, and I think in what what I would have to say is it's, it's truest state and it it begs the question for me though emily has the country cup plaza which has often been extolled as the jewel of kansas city has it lost its luster is it is it time i mean this is probably anathema and we're gonna get hate mail at the station and (laughs) people are gonna dox me and all that kind of stuff for even saying this i mean should we just like go a different direction with it entirely it's, uh, it's prime real estate in a, in a yeah. great part of town. Yeah, I think with the streetcar, you know, coming through too, it's like, ooh, that real estate's getting getting up there. Um, you know, it depends on who you talk to, if it's lost its luster or not. Uh, I'm coming into this, I'm pretty neutral. I feel like on the plaza, I don't love it. I don't hate it. I don't really go there a lot. So it's like I'm not sure that's allowable in Kansas City. I know, you have, you have, I to have mean, undying devotion and care. Anything else than that is that's uh, <laughs> who I am. I know I sh- I should pick a side, but it, it's hard. But that's, but that's fair though. I think that it's it it is sort of in this place, and you said it earlier, where it's trying to find its identity, yeah. and it you know it's in a growing pain stage at a hundred years old. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> 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 a little bit old for you to go ahead. Struggling teenagers. Yeah, yeah. Like Benjamin Buttons kind of thing. Maybe it's going right, to reverse here. Right. But, you know, it, it, you know, it's interesting because Congressman Cleaver uh, mm-hmm. said in, in, the, in the film that it's time for the plaza to take off its tuxedo. Chris Good, owner of Ruby Jean's Juicery, added this to it and said that, and put on a hoodie. And I, I wonder, is it your sense, Chris, that that's right? That that's where, as things have to evolve, that that's where the plaza needs to move to? And I, I, would, I would suggest that if that is indeed the case, then the the argument that's being made is that it needs to be more accessible, which for me begs the question, in what ways is it not accessible? Mm-hmm. Chris, I'll put that very simple question. I'll let you. No, there's a lot to unpack in that. Um, it is, it's interesting because when we first started talking about doing this documentary, it's like, oh, this will be interesting. It's a history story. And that, and it became, because of the default of the current owners and the perspective mm-hmm. change in ownership, it became very much this story of the moment. Mm. And so while we told a story of 100 years, it ends with kind of this pregnant pause, this ellipses about, okay, now what? Because the plaza is in this moment of changing ownership, prospectively, and dealing with the fundamental issues economically for the plaza, which is a lot of retail vacancies, a couple of incredibly key parcels of undeveloped land now because they tore down a big building to make way for Nordstrom's, and now that's just sitting there to be developed. There's a tremendous amount of talk about what to do with the, the tennis, tennis court. Yeah, I was going to come to that, and Chris I mean, Good had a lot to say oh, about yeah. that on the show. Uh-huh. The <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Out right. of nowhere, right? <laughs> right. So it's just a moment of reset for the plaza generally, and I would just say in terms of context, it is – the latest in a series of moments where the plaza just has to rethink its position in the world in terms of a lot of retail vacant space. That's a real challenge. The age of the buildings and how to Mm. retrofit those buildings, Mm -hmm. the impact of the streetcar, how much housing and office development can be done around the plaza without upsetting the balance. There's a whole lot to deal with. But to get to your point where you're headed – Part, and this was a recurring theme in the interviews, making the plaza more accessible for a broader proportion of the populace. Okay, and but that means economically, socially, racially, the yeah, whole thing. Right, right. Making it a exactly. place. No, we, and we all need to go there because you need to make the plaza a welcoming place for everybody in Kansas City. Do you think that the argument, either one of you, do you think that the argument could be made that 
a very storied part of the plaza's history is that it did not want to do what you just described. And in fact, it was very much looking in the opposite direction. And there are any number of policies and the number of decisions that have been made over the mm-hmm. years through the various owners from the Nichols family, mm-hmm. through some of the for-profit developers and others that seem to make it clear that the plaza was not intended to be for everybody, particularly mm-hmm. at a time when it was being built when black folk in the city couldn't even really go south of 27th Street right. in Kansas City. So right. how do we get to that point of, and I see, you know, Emily over there very deep in contemplation about this question, but Emily, how, how do we make the plaza more what Chris is talking about, this truly accessible open space that meets all the needs? Because it goes back to your mm-hmm. statement earlier that you can't be all things to all people. Yeah, it's tough. Um, I think, local, you know, it kind of goes back to the local ownership thing, but like knowing the people that you're serving, knowing the community yeah. and reaching out to them, you know, um, I think can help a lot. I don't think, you know, if you're just looking for a major, you know, New York tenants to come in, then there is, you will just get this kind of like weird whitewashed, like middle level um, kind of identity. And I don't think that's correct, you know, and I think yeah. it's good to reach out to, you know, local black owned businesses and like make that an effort because it yeah, needs that intentionality, it, obviously, yeah, yeah. like there's zero <laughs> that we know of. And so I don't know. I think that's a huge problem. To my knowledge, there's only ever yeah. been what, let me, one. one. <laughs> and that was in the past couple of years. And they had right. the misfortune, I think, of opening up around or during the time of the pandemic. So that it didn't, I mean, there were other issues too, I'm sure, but th- they didn't last long. So Chris, I'm, I'm going to bring your own question uh, sort of back to how, how do we get there? Well, this gets, this gets back to this is a great moment for reset in, in, in several ways. Assuming the pending transaction goes through the way it's been described to us, the new owners are going to own the plaza at a fraction of the price that the previous owners bought. Oh, yeah, bought they bought it with 660 right, million. Right. And, yeah, yeah. 660, yeah. what we heard fairly Two consistently, something. yeah, in the mid twos yeah. will be kind of the transaction price. So the new owners are going to have some financial flexibility that the current owners do not. Yeah. They also have a tremendous amount of vacant space where they could, with intentionality, bring in more local, unique, diverse businesses to make it feel a bit more Kansas City than it has for the last 20 years, that is an opportunity, I think, to have a different mix. You know, it's like Elizabeth Rosen said in the documentary, it doesn't feel like Kansas City to her. And, and, and why she doesn't go down there very and much. It makes it's just her that feel much need. Yeah. yeah, Because yeah. it doesn't feel like Kansas City. And I think, I think just shifting that mix a little bit will go a long way in terms of letting local if chris good got a ruby jeans on the oh my god i mean that'd be be amazing i'd love that that just just seems like such an obvious thing yeah and made in kc those folks are on the plaza now because Mm -hmm. he talked about some of the structural issues like there's you know this one area where the restoration hardware building is or store used to be and you know there's like one area for a dumpster that shake shack sort of dominates i know right where he's talking about so there are those sort of issues but I, i just wonder if Either or both of you could briefly, before we go to our lightning round, mm-hmm. um, could speak to whether or not you agree with my thought that when we talk about the plaza sort of needing to re-identify itself, I feel like Kansas City has been in that process as a whole mm-hmm. for the last 10 years. And we finally have just gotten to a point where we say we're from Kansas City with great pride. Um, Rick Hughes, who used to lead the Convention of Visitors Association here in Kansas City uh, from Dallas, used to always say that Kansas City has a poor self-image, a slow self-esteem issue. And I think that's true because ever since we didn't get that arch uh, I think we've been trying to figure out what what <laughs> signifies, what what emblem is Kansas City, but the plaza, more than any other thing, has been that. And so I just yeah. wonder, is it is it fair to say that the plaza is going through the same sort of identity crisis that the city as a whole has had to? And there have been a, a number of good wins, though. To Emily's point, we got to get the mix right down there because mm-hmm. we won a Super Bowl, we won the pennant, and all these great things. We got downtown. You got the current stadium and the riverfront. Like, there's some things, things, things yeah. are thinking. So yeah. what do you say to that? 
Chris loves to talk about this. <laughs> the Kansas City story in relation to the. Well, you got 45 seconds because I want to make sure I get to my lightning round, but you got 45 seconds to give us a succinct well, response. As a wise man once said, buy low. And this is a good mm. time to be buying the plaza because mm. it is literally being bought lower, at least. And it is at a bit of an ebb, but I think there's so much opportunity to be had. And Emily mentioned the streetcar, the impact of the streetcar, the impact of having another 1,000, 2,000 apartments nearby, which is, quote unquote, a captive audience to go and deal with retailers, local service, more service-oriented folks. Uh, walkable life, having a walkable life. The demographics in this country of people who would rather live on their feet than drive a lot is going up, not down. So I I just feel like it is not a great time for the plaza, but smart people buy low. And if they are smart people with a good hearts and a, a vision for uh, what the plaza can be and, and, and understand what it means to Kansas City, I think that it ends up being uh, something that uh, inures to all of our, our, our benefit. Uh, we're going to jump into our lightning round, our first of two. How do and, you do this with a mic <laughs> <laughs> well, Do we have a buzzer? <laughs> so here's... <laughs> I like that. I should have thought about that. So here's how we'll do this. Uh, in our then and now segment, I'm going to throw out uh, a word or a phrase. In some cases, I'll get a little bit of context. In other cases, I won't need to. But I'm going to ask uh, Chris, who is uh, a little bit uh, more seasoned than, than myself and Emily. <laughs> I knew you were going there. Lots of, lots of salt with my pepper. I, I was not, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm just, I'm, they, they can't see I'm you, so I'm just describing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm but here's how we're going to, we're going to reverse the, the roles here, though. I'm going to throw the issue out, this, the topic out, yeah. but I'd like for Emily, you to speak to the then, and Chris, you to speak to the now. And so the first one on my list, okay. you both have mentioned it, um, the first two actually, is the streetcar. Then it played a profound role and the plaza's uh, viability. Talk some about that. And then, Chris, give us the now. Sure. Yeah. Um, the streetcar is funny because it's something that Nichols had and I think realized it was a good tool, but never wanted to uh, emphasize. Mm. He wanted the automobile. The cars, yeah. yeah. So he's like, nah, streetcar's not a big deal. But he did build it around a streetcar line, you know, <laughs> and I think he knew that that was still useful. Right. And his audience to the plaza. But I think he did want it to be more as upper class as possible and wanted the automobile to be the front center. So public transportation was not really a benefit as we are I talking mean, about it. It Is that was, but he never wanted to say it was. Gotcha. Right. He was he was looking to the future, and the future was the automobile. And, and the future the is now, this year now, right. <laughs> but the, the now aspect of the streetcar, which is an ongoing conversation in our newsroom, is what is the Main Street extension really about? Is it about moving people or is it about creating locations for developers to build high-rise apartments nearby? And the, the streetcar impact on the plaza and all of Main Street is something to really watch over the next 18 months as it gets wrapped up. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great topic. I, I will say as a Main Street uh, commercial property owner, um, everybody along Main Street, thinks they've got a million-dollar property. Uh, certainly, I got my tax letter the other day, and you know, like the taxes have gone up, so the county is obviously preparing for this increased value. Um, but I also feel like a, a lot is being missed in that, too. And I, you know, it's not often talked about, but when I first heard that, oh, we want to extend the streetcar line, and you know, here's how we're going to come up with the money, and they said, oh, we want to extend it to UMKC for the students. I was like, oh, give me a break. We know what this is about. But I, I, I digress. So, what's the next topic? Housing. Then, now, and on the show, we talked about this notion of affordable housing on the plaza, and it almost seems like, again, I use the word like anathema. Does anybody really want, what, what, or what comes to mind with affordable housing? So just housing generally, then and then now. Okay. Um, yeah, I believe Bill Worley talked about, I think 70 to 90% of the workers on the plaza lived nearby within walking distance. That's astonishing. Yeah, that's just how it was. That was like normal to like live, you know, close to where you work. And um, like the automobile wasn't a big thing for working class people. So they kind of had to. And I think Nichols built apartments that were affordable for them. So, so does the now thing. mix Chris <laughs> include uh, a bunch of big? 
It definitely includes more housing. I'm not sure how much affordable housing will be, quote-unquote, near well, the that's plaza. A, that's a misnomer throughout the entire city and probably the entire country. Oh, what absolutely. is affordable housing? And I have an know? incredibly yeah. personal story to share on this. Do, yeah. Uh, which, when my wife and I first moved to Kansas City in 1985, we found an apartment um, at 48th and Oak, right across the street from Tice Mall and the yeah. museum and everything. Um, this is 1985. It was a three-story, third-story flat apartment, 240 a month. And we thought, oh my God, what a great deal. We're the luckiest people on earth. And then I picked up the newspaper like within a week of moving to Kansas City, and there was a story about the Sailors Project, which was the big one at the East End. And I'm definitely coming to that. That is on my list okay, for okay. sure. Yeah. <laughs> now, fast forward, oh my God. 38 years, and I'm talking to my son and his girlfriend who lives in the apartment project where we used to live. Oh, wow. And she's paying more for her apartment than we're paying on our mortgage. And that, trust me, that is such a huge and fundamental issue for America in general, and, <laughs> which and, and, is and, and, how much, particularly younger people, to just have a place to put their lay their head at night, and, and if, the if prospect you that, of buying a home. If you want is that huge. at the Country Club Plaza, you're, you're probably not gonna get it. I mean, in other areas of the city that are not as lauded as we have or do with the plaza, I mean, you, you just it's just and unaffordable. we've had people say like, "Is it needed on the plaza? Is affordable housing needed in every area of the city? Can there be this luxury enclave?" Is that okay? Like, that's been talked about. Ooh, there are going to be so many fights about that. Let me go to the next thought. I, I, yeah, but, but it kind of goes to this next two, these next two pieces, really. And so I'll throw this one out. Mm -hmm. um, the mix of retailers. I mean, mom and pop versus high-end. And you already spoke about how in the 80s, there was this conversion to more luxury brands and things. And I promise I do not have gas, <laughs> nor does Chris <laughs> or Chris or Where Emily. Is this <laughs> All right, it's done. <laughs> we'll cut that out. I'll ask again. So, so, so then, then and now, yeah. the mix of retailers on the plaza, mom and pop versus high end. And you spoke already about how in the 80s, there was that sort of switch to, to more high end stores. What should be there now? And we've talked about some of the local stores that are Kansas City, but there are high end books here, boutiques here that are locally owned. Wait, so am I talking about the then mm -hmm. of that? Mm -hmm. Just who was there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there was, uh, I think, Three grocery stores. There was Piggly Wiggly in the beginning. You know, there was uh, Wolferman's. The thought of a Piggly Wiggly yeah. on the plaza is just uh, hilarious to me. <laughs> yeah, there was more than one. So Stop. there was there was like, you know, different kind of, uh, what's the word, like cost of grocery store. You know, there were mm. more luxury grocery stores. There was some middle of the line. There was, you know, the movie theater. Um, and there was a bowling alley. That wasn't until later. <laughs> I'm trying to do the early days. But uh, yeah, there was a bowling alley. Well, I'm going to go ahead and go go ahead. interject for just a moment because <laughs> the next on my list is the entertainment and the mix of entertainment on oh, the yeah. plaza too and the fact I put the bowling alley in the movie theater. So maybe just as a whole. Yeah. Um, interesting fact about the bowling alley. It was open 24-7 during World War II so that when the troops came back home, they had a place to hang out and talk and you know, go for entertainment. Which if, is actually awesome. I, I know. Mean, so they opened for free for the troops 24-7, and that was in the... They opened in 1940, so it was around then. But mm. yeah, and uh, there were eight gas stations at one point. It was very service and, yeah, entertainment, um, bowling alley, movie theater. I, I can't think of another entertainment option and, at the moment. Well, and so so now, and even the the... Now, as in, yes, present day, but forecasting just a little bit with the new owners and, and all of that, what should that mix of entertainment and retailers look like? And frankly, because we did hear Congressman Cleaver say in the documentary, you know, we can't have a thousand entertainment districts. What should be the, what is the appropriate mix for the plaza? I think it does include, and again, this is buzzword stuff in the retail world, but experiential retail, you know, where you're going for an experience, that's going to have to be part of the mix because there's a lot of spaces to fill. So yeah. I think you're going to see, and you're starting to see some of that across the street from the core of the plaza with the puttery and cheese yes. fit and there are a few ideas like there's an escape room now on the plaza things like that that's going to be part of the mix i think the other thing you're going to see there seems to be a fair amount of demand slash buzz around more local restaurants uh i think 
You know, I, nice. I still I still weep crocodile tears over Houston's. I mean, that was oh, uh, listen, that was I, my family's go-to. Hawaiian ribeye since then. Yeah, that oh, is that, that, I, I, I'm this sorry. a moment of silence. In fact, that, that listen, is probably the longest standing vacant space on the plaza. It well, might be, and appropriately so, because that was one of the biggest dumbest decisions. I don't often editorialize on the show or on the follow up, <laughs> but I'm going to now and say that was just one of the. I remember having conversations with people about, like, how could you possibly let Houston's go? Um, And it it baffles me. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna jump to one other issue before I go to quickly with uh, these these dates I want to throw out to you. And it really does speak to the then and the now, and it is a common thread that follows from the very origins of the planning for the plaza all the way to now. So 19, what, 12 is when he mm-hmm. kind of started yeah. to, to, to now. And it's around race. And so when we talk about the mix of retailers and we talk about the types of entertainment um, that should be on the plaza, and it's not lost on me and I'm sure most people. Uh, Chris Good talked about this on the show. He talked about it in the documentary. Glenn Grant from the Urban League talked about it in the documentary as well, which is that Al Brooks talked about it. I mean, now I think about it. Sly James talked about it. Cleaver talked about it. Anybody who was black in the documentary that was on the show talked about what it was like to be a black person in Kansas City on the plaza. And even when you did feel like you could go, just safely just be in the area, the experience you would have in the stores being followed. And that's, I, I, I will tell you in my own life, I had any number, innumerable experiences where it's like, okay, I know I need to go to X store. And the the mental conditioning do I really want to put up with this BS today? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I mention it because there was a very interesting part of the documentary in Nichols Folly where, and it's toward the end, where you have three men, the first black mayor of the city of Kansas City, the second black mayor of the city of Kansas City, and the third and current black mayor mm-hmm. of the city of Kansas City, all talking about their experiences and their perceptions of the plaza. And so, Emily, then and now, relative to race on the plaza, and because I, I really feel, and Gwen Grant said this um, <clears throat> in the documentary, that the movie theater became that draw that I think the owners of the plaza and probably many others were all too happy to see go away when mm-hmm. the promise of Nordstrom's taking the space was was in the right. discussions. Well, the movie theater was really important for me to add because that was my favorite part of the plaza. Absolutely. I went there every Hello. weekend yes. in high school and um, early into college even. And so I was like, we're putting that in there. Yeah. But I, yeah, it's the story of that is very, I think, racially motivated. And, you know, I think it did hurt the plaza, plaza's image and everything. But some people would argue the latter. And, and, and would you would you say that, I mean, there were the, I mean, it's in the documentary. I mean, we all know this to be fact that the, the covenants, you couldn't be Jewish, you couldn't right. be a Negro, you can be black and, and, and own property on the plaza yeah. house or building, you know, so. So the plaza technically never had any like restrict restriction to it in terms of race, like going to the plaza, right. you know, but, and I asked Bill a few times because I was just like clarifying. I was like, so what, like in the earliest stages, you know, and he's like, you know, black people did help the construction of the plaza. They were workers, but you know, until yeah, just like until, this country, I mean, you can yeah, you can build this country, is, you can't enjoy it. I'm saying fully. there's nothing like there was really nothing unique going right. on on the yeah. plaza in terms of race in the beginning. Like that was very divided, and you heard Alvin Brooks talk about you know in the 50s, you know, go there, but you can't try clothes on. Uh, you could go to restaurants, but you have to take it out. Um, and so, the, and then civil rights, you know, that movement happened and things started to slowly evolve. But I think Chris, I don't think it made the documentary, but you know, he was said something like, it's still not like a hundred percent there. Right, right. I don't feel a hundred percent on the plaza. So Chris, how do we in the now Sorry. address, I, I think oh, no, 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 part, part of that happened when, uh, we saw the naming of the, of Nichols Parkway and, and the fountain change, um, is that purely symbolic? Or does it also speak to the city when to turn a page from the then that Emily just described to the now that you're about to talk about? It does. I agree with that. Uh, A couple of things. Segregation was the business model for Nichols. That's the simple, truthful, direct, honest answer. Yeah. 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 The racial covenants 
kept folks out of those neighborhoods. The plaza was served the folks in those neighborhoods. It was designed to serve those folks. So segregation was an important part of his business model. I think oftentimes in Kansas City, and I said this during the screening at the Nelson, it becomes such a simple answer to say, we have a stark racist history in Kansas City, and it's all because of Nichols. It's not. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's no. not. That's too simple. And in fact, it's only symptomatic of oh, the yes. larger issue. He was part a big of a symbol, much yeah. bigger story yeah. that was part became part of his business model. And that's just, it's the simple truth. So grappling with Nichols' legacy, he built incredible things. Yeah. He built the plaza and incredibly gorgeous neighborhoods. He was a genius. Been mimicked at, and copied all over the place. Yes, yeah. He was a genius at building communities, but only in the physical sense. He was not a genius in terms of building communities that are inclusive. And that's that's the troubling part of it. So the renaming and, and all that stuff. And the fact of the matter is, again, I always default to the economics argument. You are not going to be successful in America as a business person in the future unless you are inclusive. That's just the numbers. We are going to be minority white in this country in the next few years. And so if your doors aren't open for everybody, you're missing out on, frankly, you're missing out on a huge chunk of business. And at the end of the day, a couple of people kind of explored this in our conversations. Nichols was a businessman. Yeah. He, was a, he was a profit maximizer. And in that context, he did things that kind of, he felt at least, maximized his profit. Well, going forward, that's not the model that's going to really succeed in this country. Well, I, you know, we were talking about the Country Cup Plaza, uh, but I think that that statement that you made is uh, certainly true in our politics too. So uh, if you happen to be a part of a certain party, you might want to get a bigger tent. Um, I do want to throw out a few dates related to the plaza that were highlighted in Nichols Folly, but they're more this end of the the spectrum mm-hmm. of its history. And then I'm going to ask a question. But first, the dates that, that stood out to me. 1977, big flood on the plaza, right? Uh, 1984, this major controversy over the sailors' development, this big, huge building that they wanted to build, and everybody's like, oh, my God. No, not on the plaza. 1998, the Nichols family sold... The plaza is the first time we didn't have local mm-hmm. and I would say indigenous to that family ownership, right? Indigenous to Kansas City. They sold the Highwoods properties. 2011, crime is spiking and everybody was mad. Mm-hmm. Even though there were a lot of quote unquote youth from the east side were taking a lot of the blame for what was happening. I don't care who you were. Anybody I talked to, black, white, oh, yeah, they were like, listen, that's our plaza. We're not going to let anybody tear it up. Yeah. Everybody felt a sense of ownership, which I think is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 2016, the plaza sold again. Chris, you mentioned this is $660 million, again, to another out-of-state developer. 2019, when, when Emily and I cried tears because the movie theater closed, mm-hmm. and of course, that Nordstrom's deal just tanked. But 2020 was Freedom Summer. And you mentioned, Emily, about the civil rights era and how that played a part on things that were occurring on the plaza. But again, Freedom Summer, I was at those protests. I was tear gassed by police. Um, One of the things that I took note of and why I wanted to mention this is that as we were marching, and I was there pretty much every day, Hmm. anybody who would attempt to harm the plaza, (coughs) any of the buildings, (coughs) pardon me, any any violence, they were on them. These, those are like people who are not from here. You don't get it. Like get that said a lot to me about, and I'm talking young, old. I mean, people were like, "This is our plaza," but here we are in 2023, and we're still trying to figure out who the plaza belongs to. So my last question is really one about ownership, and I know that we talk about it in the sense of you know the title and deeds and the physical property itself, but to what extent? Emily, and then you, Chris, and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up, but to what extent is the plaza owned by the city, the citizenry of Kansas City? Oh, man. Quentin Lucas had a great quote, um, and we had to cut a lot of it out, but that's, that's kind of what he talked about. It's like when something is you know, a certain age and the owners don't take care of it, it becomes, what's it called? Like a 
Some kind of a loan. Or go, anyway. go, go to the, like the land bank or something. <laughs> He's like, yeah. Kansas City has kind of taken it through these hard years it's had lately because it hasn't felt like it's had an owner. And yeah. so I think there is part of, you know, technically we don't have any ownership and all the developers will tell you that. But there is that feeling and I don't ha- have it as much being, you know, 29, but a lot of people who are older than me feel like it's theirs. <laughs> And part of me wishes that, like, we could, like, the, the you know, Milwaukee, like, you know, they, they own the Packers or whatever. Like, yeah, exactly. I just, I, I wish there was that kind of a exactly. thing where, like, it could be donated to, like, the community foundation, like the Royals were or whatever. But, Chris, in terms of ownership, take yep. that question and tell us sort of how you see it. I, I really boiled it down. It, it may have been in a subhead of Brian Burns's piece. It was on Flatland. You know, it is private property, but it is a public trust. And that's how the plaza has evolved over a hundred over a hundred years. And it really that notion of it being a public trust, I think, really began uh, during these planning controversies, the Sailors Project or the Polzinelli Building, where people, just community members, saw that the plaza, which they loved in their own, it's a complicated relationship, but there's a love thing there. <laughs> it's complicated. Uh, saw it being threatened and stepped up and said, you can't do this, you know? And so I like this notion of not a financial thing, but it is a public trust to do, do right by the plaza. By doing right by the plaza, you can do right by the entire city. And I think there's an opportunity again, buy low, <laughs> but, but that, do but that's, the right but thing a, going forward and we'll all benefit. That, but that's a hell of a uh, statement. And I hope that whoever the eventual actual owners of the plaza are for this next iteration of its evolution, um, I hope that they do just what you said, do what's right for the plaza, because in so doing, uh, you'll do what's right for Kansas City. And I couldn't agree with that more. I want to thank my guests on today's Flatland follow-up, my colleagues and friends, Emily Woodring, who produced the excellent documentary, Nichols Folly, about the Country Club Plaza, and Chris Lester, who's managing editor of Flatland, and who was also a producer on the on the film. I want to thank uh, my other friend, Chris, here, who's been engineering our sound today, and hopefully I didn't cause him any complications with my raspy voice. I saw like I've been gargling rocks or something, but I'm so glad to be back with you all. This has been a little bit longer Flatland follow-up, but the conversation, the topic uh, has all been very, very good. We want to thank you for tuning in. Please follow us for our next episode, and you're going to want to tune into that because we're going to be talking about media literacy and how important that is in this day and age of fake news and disinformation, misinformation, and so forth. I'm D. Rashawn Gilmore. You've been listening to Flatland follow-up. Thanks so much for tuning in.